Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. I got bad news about Monkey. What's up? She's got bad lung cancer, and uh, there's other tumors on her uh, kidneys and liver. Oh, that's terrible news. Yeah. I mean, she's 15, so they gave her a total clean bill of health in December, and then in January, she was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. Oh, that's terrible. She's still having fun. I mean, she... She has trouble sleeping. When she sleeps, the tumors press down and block her her uh, passageway a little bit. So she sometimes has trouble breathing at night and all that kind of stuff. And her arthritis is getting real bad. So yeah, she's in pain, but she's still happy. Like she's still, I mean, produce a ball and she's going nuts. Oh yeah. Well, some things will never change. So I'm just oh, trying to have that poor thing. a good time with her. Yeah, yeah. Because what else is there with your dog at the end of the day? You know. Like yeah. that, that's, that's still, that's tragic. I mean, I, I gotta say, I mean, monkeys, uh, I mean, I know for you, this is off the charts, of course, but for, for me, you know, monkey isn't just a dog, you know, she's a good friend. Oh, she, yeah. She's got, she's one of those human dogs, like, or, you know, people dogs where it's got like, just got old soul, whatever, you know, like kind of just uh, connects with people real well. She, she does not know she's a dog. Like like Sochi, my dog, in some ways, like she had, she's supposed to be dead, really. I mean, what else can you say? Right. I mean, you the way you got her, which might be a good subject for Bobo's story time. Well, gather around, it's Bobo's story time. Dude, he's gonna say some things that'll blow your mind. Classic. And if you say he's lying, he's gonna kick you behind. For sure. Once again, it's Bobo's story. Any description of felonious or criminal activity is being told here strictly for entertainment purposes and is in no way an admission of guilt or even true for that matter. Yeah, so I originally got Monkey back in 2004 when I was living with Alboy, and our buddy Ducky was coming into town. He's this crazy, wild redneck guy from down in Alder Point. Alder Point, again, is that place where they filmed Murder Mountain, a Netflix documentary. And so it's just, she was from the Wild West down there. And what happened was there was this pot grower guy down there that he was this gnarly guy drove around with a machine gun and just crazy dude. And he had this little gnarly Jack Russell Terrier that whenever it made it with a pit bull or like a half pit bull dog, all the dogs had to be shot before they were a year old because the dad was such a killing machine. It would kill turkeys, ducks, tons of chickens, like lambs during when they're, you know, that they're giving birth and, his little 15-pound wire-haired Jack Russell was just a terror. And so whenever they impregnated a pit bull, they'd get these like giant Jack Russell mini pit bull things that were big enough to really do some damage. They all had been shot before they were a year old. So this uh, old redneck guy had a bear hunt dog. It was half pit bull, half wolfhound penned up outside. He kept seeing Monkey's dad slip in there trying to you know mount her, and she just ragged all the dog. And he never gave it up, though. He'd still... Kept trying and trying and trying. And he said one morning, he goes, I came out one more. That little son of a bitch was just sitting there pumping away while she was sleeping. So, and sure enough, 
whenever the puppies were born, he saw there were those little Jack Russell puppies, and he put them all in a burlap bag, went to the Alder Point Bridge, checked them out. Sergio, checked them, put a brick in the bag, and threw the bridge off, threw the bag off the bridge. There was some hippie swimming down below. He goes, "Hey man, what are you doing? Don't litter the river." And the old man goes, "I ain't littering. I'm getting rid of puppies." And the guy swam out there, dove down, finally found the bag. He said it was underwater for about five minutes. He pulled it out. There were nine puppies in there. Monkey was barely alive. The other ones were dead. And he blew in her nose and held her upside down. She was tiny, like not even close to a pound, you know, like quarter pound, something like that. Just this little eyes closed, couldn't even walk it. Or another was just born. Nursed it back to health. Like a month later, she's only three or four days old. A month later, some tweaker came down to yell at him about something and started blasting donuts. And the guy's on his front uh, property and drove over the, while well, he was doing donuts, he, Monkey was laying out in the sunshine. He ran over Monkey and shot her, and she flew against the barn, broke her back legs, uh, pelvis, spleen, all broke ribs. And the hippie guy took her in and got her fixed up as much as he could, but the, it was getting so expensive he couldn't afford it, so then... Ducky, he said, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take her and I'll take care of her. And Ducky, he got her and he was just partying so much. It was like, I could tell that dog was not, he was, he's a cool guy, but he was not in a position to take care of an injured young puppy. And he lived out in the, you know, out in the mountains. And I was in town. So I was like, hey, you know, I'll just, I'll, let me take her, man. Let me have her. Let me have her. And so let me take her. And uh, yeah, she's been with me ever since I was back in uh, September, 2004. Wow. I, I remember the year actually. Yeah. Cause yeah. you and I were hanging out at that time. Since you've known me, I've always had monkey. Yeah. It's kind of one of those uh, permanent installations that, uh, processing the shock of that might not be permanent. We'd never been apart until she was, uh, like five years old. When we started filming this show four years old, or five years old. Weird stuff, man. Yeah. A monkey just came out to say hello. She's been in the back room. Oh, monkey. good girl. Uh, don't think she has to go to the bathroom right now. Hi, monkey. Hello. Good girl. Oh, God. Monkey, please don't do that. She starts licking her chops, comes over and just stares at me and licks and licks and just drives me insane. Well, that's kind of a short jaunt in the car, though, Bubs. The struggle's real. <laughs> and so is the pain i understand you are now listening to bigfoot and beyond featuring the lennon and mccartney of bigfoot though they're arguably harrison and star cliff and bobo the other class of sightings that i did focus on um, during especially my full-time field project was that um, some of the most extended sightings that I'm aware of come from people in parked vehicles, in like housed inside the vehicle. There's a whole host of those kind of sightings, again, in the aforementioned databases, credible sightings. So I think that that's a good way to see one as well. So I sleep in my vehicle a lot for that reason, because it's basically like you're in a you're in an observation blind and you're surrounded with glass. You know, you can't see outside when you're in a tent or, you know, in some other structure. So being in the vehicle helps, but I think that might be a good way to not only see one, but to get footage under the right conditions. But yeah, I would say the biggest thing that I learned is like, 
I, I wasted a lot of years not putting any effort into trying to facilitate a daylight sighting or observation or trying to get footage in the day. I was too fixated on trying to get footage at night. Well, you know, I would like to put out there that uh, John Green's data indicates that approximately 60% of sightings occur during the day. And of course, that's because a lot more people are out, but still, the, the odds are good, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think they could be categorized as ephemeral, which is, you know, periods of activity punctuated by periods of inactivity day and night. So not strictly diurnal, not strictly nocturnal, not crepuscular, uh, et cetera but moving it day and night. And of course, it makes sense to me that they would come closer to people at night because, you know, in order to keep tabs on people in the dark, you've got to be within visual range. And certainly they can see in the dark, but probably not as well as they see during the daytime. And so that would, that would mean a closer approach. For a long time, I thought that they might understand that we can't see very well in the dark. Um, but I don't know if I think that anymore because, I mean, imagine the, the cognitive ability that it would take for you to understand that another thing like you has a different perception of the world than you do, it's certainly possible. Because again, tigers, one concept uh, that I learned, there's another book called The Tiger by a guy named John Vylant. Uh, that's about this one specific Siberian tiger who went on this basically like revenge quest for a guy who shot at it. And so he tells like the history of the, the natural history of the Siberian tiger and a lot of the geopolitical history of, or the political history of that particular region in the book. But uh, it turned me on to, there was a, uh, an Estonian guy named Jacob von Uxkul, who was the father of ethology, which is basically like behavioral ecology. And so he postulated this way of thinking about the natural world in, in terms of animal perception. And he called it the Umwelt which is like the umwelt is like the, the specific bubble of perception that an animal has. And then the objective environment is called the umbegung, which is like you, can't, you cannot experience the objective environment. You can't do it because you're human. You're limited. You can't see infrared. You can't hear uh, ultrasound. You know what I mean? So you're a very, very limited measuring tool for the natural world. And so all animals have, have these limited perceptions that are all different. So like the analogy would be that he uses is like if a woman is walking her dog down the street, they both occupy the same objective environment, the umbagung, but they have two entirely different umbelts. So the woman is paying attention to traffic cues and traffic lights when it's safe to cross the street. She's noticing um, sale signs in windows of shops that she's interested in buying stuff in. She might be looking for you know a place to stop and get coffee, whereas the dog is you know, can smell the urine of other dogs at the base of fire hydrants. It can smell the particles of uh, cooked meat coming out of the exhaust of a restaurant, et cetera. So an animal like a tiger is inserting itself into the umbelt of its prey, into, you know, again, dozens of pairs of eyes and ears. So it could be possible that if they're capable of that kind of, I don't know if you'd call it empathy or not, uh, but that Sasquatches might be too, but I really don't think that they understand that we can't see very well in the dark. I think those close approaches are more predicated on the fact that like they have to get closer to see us. So but again, that's long winded, but that's why I spent so much more time at night because I thought it was more conducive to a close encounter, which would be again, more conducive to visual contact via a thermal imager. But now, you know, I spend a whole lot more time trying to facilitate a daylight sighting and to get daylight footage. Well, I can remember being eight or nine years old, perhaps, you know, somewhere in there um, and being told, you know, yeah, dogs see in black and white. They can't see color. 
and try as I, I, I might, I, there's no way you could really wrap your head around that at that age, you know? And it seems to me that Sasquatches would fit right in there. Like looking at us, they would probably, I think immediately recognize that we're kind of like them. Um, and it, so I would assume that they would, uh, assume we have the same abilities that they have. And if they see us in the dark, then they have to assume that we see equally well in the dark. And also to add to that, uh, to kind of support that, uh, that suggestion a little bit more, the very few pieces of legitimate thermal imaging uh, video I've seen of Sasquatches, they're all hiding. The first thing that came to mind was Mike Green's footage, because look how cautious that thing is in total darkness alone with no vehicles and no, it's in a campground, but there's no vehicles, there's no tents, there's no lights, there's no fires in those fire rings. So people, yeah. And yet it's that cautious in the dark. And why is it that cautious? Because it looks like it's trying to avoid being seen, you know? So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think you're, I think you're completely right with that. Because they've been shot at so much. If that's just hardwired into them via their their hunting behaviors, that they just avoid detection by everything else in the environment, you know, because if, if a tiger is is noisy and visible, it will never eat. And again, I don't think Sasquatches strictly eat meat. And who knows what degree, you know, what percentage of their diet is constituted by animal protein. But it, it might be enough that it's imperative to their survival that they just are never detected. I mean, clearly there's something at work there because they they live that way 24-7, apparently. And I don't think it's necessarily restricted just to human influence and human contact. But that could certainly be part of it in certain regions where people have shot at them. I mean, who knows, too? In, in, you know, in a lot of parts of the country, people can hunt bears with dogs. And so people will train their dogs year-round, even though they're not hunting. And they'll dogs will run bears and so who knows? In some of these places, they might have been pursued by humans on ATVs and dogs, dogs that were just chasing something. And, you know, the dogs didn't know it wasn't a bear and the person didn't know it wasn't a bear or something of that nature. So, yeah, they might have had some adaptations in some areas that are directly a response to being pursued by people. So, yeah, it could be in certain places more than others, I guess is what I would, would say. You know, there's certainly there's probably parts of North America where there are these things around and they've just never seen people. You, know, you can imagine like parts of Alaska or certain portions of Canada where these things might exist that they've just maybe they see humans once in their entire lifetime. Um, but yet they're probably still just as furtive and elusive, which speaks to again, if you if you look at these commonalities, I mean, they, they exhibit those same behaviors in those same contexts from, you know, in the entire continent. So it seems like that's innate. It's hardwired. It's something that's like the analogy I use is like it's hardware and not software. You know what I mean? Like it's it's their operating system. And uh, they might install individual apps. <laughs> you know, in certain places, they might have the app for dealing with bear dogs. Uh, in certain places, they might have the app for dealing with um, snowmobile intruders. You know what I mean? Like these certain local or regional adaptations or responses. But so it's looking at the things that are shared across the entire population that constitute innate behaviors. And so I, I, the analogy, again, is like that's the operating system. That comes standard issue on every model that comes out, you know. And those are the things to target because those are the things that will be reliable regardless of where you're going after them. That's a good analogy. Oh, hey, you know, that's that's what Area X. How about that tracking little beacon you guys had going? That's, that's really fascinating. That's one of the more fascinating things that I've seen anyone do in a long time. That was before my membership, so I can't claim any sort of credit or ownership for that. So I brag on that a lot, and I'm, I'm free to do so because it wasn't associated with me. 
So there's a if you're interested in that full story, there's a paper that was published about it on the website, uh, woodape.org, and then there's a podcast episode called Tag 7. Uh, but in a nutshell, I guess no pun intended, uh, we had a, a number of members who came together with various skills and various backgrounds. Um, one in particular was a uh, wildlife biologist from the Northeast who had prior experience with using radio tags to track animal movements. So, of course, you know, you have to catch the animal and affix the tag to the animal in order to track it. So they were doing it with things like turtles, for example, to track their movements. And so one of the things that the group had done for a long time, uh, because, you know, they're operating, it's a large valley, but the, the footprint that they occupy is a very small one. And so they were having intrusions into this small footprint. So one of the things that they would do regularly was to string sewing thread, which is really tough. I mean, you can't break it with your hands. You got to like cut it with your teeth. And uh, so they would string sewing thread uh, tied from like tree to tree in a big perimeter around this footprint of camp. It would be like seven to eight feet high, somewhere in that range. If activity occurred, you could check in the morning and you'd see like one of those had been compromised. It had been broken. And if you do it where it's long enough between the two trees, it will trail in the, in the direction that the animal has moved. So if it's going from south to north and breaks that string, the string trails out to the north before it lands on the ground. So it basically not only shows you where the thing moved, but in what direction it was going. So they had been doing that for quite a while, just trying to get an idea of like, is there a certain direction or a certain point of entry into this camp that seems to be used the most frequently? And so the idea of the radio tags was introduced. And and, uh, another one of our members, a guy named Mark McClurkin, came up with this idea of like, why don't we put them in cockleburrs? like these naturally occurring uh, seed pods that have these spiny uh, points that will affix to things, you know, to carry the seeds and have them deposited at a distance. And so they collected a lot of these, cut them in half, cored out the material and, and affixed them onto these radio tags. And then they would cover that with rat trap glue because that glue is very adhesive. And it doesn't degrade in weather. So it can be out in the environment for months. You know, it can get rained on, et cetera. And it it won't lose any of its adhesive qualities. So they had actually tested it. Mark tested it on bear fur, deer fur, various types of bird feathers, uh, just to see how long it would stick. And he put it through like these rigorous kind of quality tests, I guess you could say, until they arrived at this concoction that they felt like this will stick to an animal. And the, the whole idea was like, it will stick to the animal. And, you know, they're apes, and so they probably groom. And so shortly thereafter, it will tear the thing out of its hair. And then you can find the tag, and then you'll have this nice collection of hair <laughs> stuck in this rat trap glue. That was kind of the, the hope. To further explain, they're they are affixed by a magnet. And so they, they're basically dormant. And once the magnet comes off the tag, the tag goes active. And they have an internal battery that will last like 10 months to a year. How big are the transmitters? Uh, it's like the size of a marble. Yeah, they're, they're like little, small, circular, marble-sized balls. And they have – the antenna is just a coated wire that's, I don't know, like four or five inches long. So it kind of looks like a cherry with a long stem. And so then you put that inside of a cockleburr. And, you know, cockleburrs very often have those long stems that they hold to the tree until the tree drops them. And it just looks like that. So when they would hang those from these string traps – and it just looked like a cockleburr suspended in a spider web, which there's tons of those out there. I mean, you walk around there summer and you're just eating spider webs all the time. And there are all kinds of leaves and things caught in them. So there's all kinds of things hanging, you know, above the ground level in these spider webs uh, in the like understory there. 
So they looked very, very natural. And so you have these receivers and these big massive antennas that are just sweeping those frequencies. So I think in that case, they had nine tags, if I'm not mistaken. Um, each one has its own frequency. So the, the thing is just doing a sweep of those frequencies. And if the tag gets deployed and the magnet comes off, because the magnet is tied to a tree independently, then all of a sudden that frequency starts going like boop, boop, boop. And it's kind of alerting you like, oh, this tag is deployed. And so at some point in that particular summer operation, one of the tags became active. And of course, the thought was like, oh man, the thing fell. We got to go put it back up, you know? And sure enough, it was gone. It's a long story and I don't want to get the details wrong. So I'd really suggest listening to the podcast or reading the paper, but they lost the signal. And so one of the things that's so amazing about this group is that there's such a diversity of talent. There's multiple pilots in the group. So they were able to get in a plane up above the study site and start doing these concentric circles from the air with the antenna. And they reacquired the signal and they found where the thing was. So they tracked this thing until the battery in the radio tag died, which I think was about nine to 10 months, cataloging all the radio hits. Um, they came fairly close to it a couple of times, but of course, like it was highly mobile and on the move and it wasn't conforming to roads or trails or old road beds. So it's like bushwhacking, trying to get close to it. Um, so you just have to get as close as you can and take multiple readings and multiple bearings. But essentially at the end of all that, what they found was that, uh, it had a range of about somewhere in the neighborhood of like 70 to 75 square miles. And so it was well outside of the home range. For example, like black bears in that particular area, because it's eastern deciduous forest, very similar to the southern Appalachians. Uh, your average adult male black bear has a home range of like 16 to 18 square miles. And that's a home range. That's, you know, a territory smaller than that. And a core area is even smaller than that. So it's well outside of the range of of a black bear. It's well outside the range of uh, most bird species. And again, the testing showed that the thing that would drop the tag um, in the least amount of time was bird feathers. It just would not adhere to bird feathers of multiple types and multiple sorts. The other interesting thing about that time of year, because it was tracked throughout the winter, is that the bears there uh, were reintroduced from, uh, I believe, Minnesota, but somewhere in the north. And so the bears there actually still exhibit hibernating uh, activities. They still hibernate, even though a lot of bears south of a certain area won't. It does get extremely cold there, and bears are not true hibernators, so they will go into torpor or you know seclusion based on drops below a certain temperature range. All the research into black bears and the Washita's there shows that they hibernate. So there shouldn't have even been bear activity during those months when this thing was still highly mobile and covering a very large area. So they were able to rule out a lot of known animals because the height that the thing was set the range that it had and, you know, some of the experiences had while tracking it. So I think it's absolutely fascinating. And we do intend to do more with the radio tags. We haven't had another one deploy. It's definitely something we're still doing. It wasn't like you could just turn on your computer and follow it. Like it was, it wasn't a constant signal. You'd have to get up in a plane, right? Or something. And it's emitting a radio frequency. So it has to be detected with like a radio antenna that's within proximity. So you had to be within a certain range to even pick it up. If it was a GPS transmitter, then yeah, you could deposit it on the thing and track it from home, uh, which would be optimal. I just don't know if that technology even exists. It might, or if it's small enough. See, the thing is, is that in all of the known literature related to tracking radio telemetry, tracking wildlife movement, this is the one and only time that anyone's ever gotten an animal to tag itself. 
In every other instance, an animal has to be trapped or darted, you know, tranquilized, and then a tag affixed to it and then release. I mean, if we could do that, then we wouldn't need to tag one, you know. So this is the first time in the literature where someone successfully deployed a radio tag on an animal by having it self-tagged. That's rad. I think the podcast episode that they did is really great to listen to because you get to hear all the experiences of the people that were involved in tracking that for all of those months. And we'd like to see, I mean, the reason that we publish all that is we want to see more people try that. We want to see it get replicated and have people, if they're in a position to be able to do so, to employ that in their own areas if they can. You know, it's it's a difficult thing and it requires, I mean, just the amount of brain power it took to put all that together and then the, the manpower it takes to I mean, that's the thing. Once I joined that group and I saw what they were doing, I can honestly tell you, like, there's never been an effort as strong as this one in the history of the subject. And the summer operations alone are so many months long, and they keep that site occupied with people for months on end. And it takes so much planning and coordination. You know, I go out there multiple times a year, and it's it's about a 1,200-mile round trip for me. And I'm out there for a week at a time, and I'm just one person out of, like, 35 to 45 who are facilitating those summer teams and then the ability to say, oh, well, let's just get so-and-so who has a plane to fly and find the signal. I mean, it's it's not the kind of thing that just anybody can pull off, uh, but we do want to see people try to replicate it and try to employ that in their own research, which is why I'll, it's why we publish all that stuff and why we share all that information in the podcast is we want to say like, hey, this works for us. Even if you're not trying to collect the specimen, even if you're just trying to learn or get videos or photos, try these things. It might work for you. You know, maybe with the advancement of drones, we'll be able to track them, pick up the signal with just a, you know, a couple thousand dollar drone. Yeah, I just, I wonder how much, a how long a drone could stay in the air. It seems like that's always the prohibitive factor. But to me, the perfect thing would be is if there were uh a GPS transmitter. It just seems like that would take more battery power. I could be wrong, but um, you know, it doesn't, these radio tags don't use much power, which is why they're a little battery and they last for as long as it does. I don't know if it would require more power to keep a GPS signal that's constantly uploading. Like when you see the GPS collars that are affixed to animals and animal tracking, like that's a pretty big, you know, the pack is like the size of um, like your headlamp, uh, just a big, large thing. Oh, it's like a brick. Yeah, whereas these radio tags, I mean, again, they're like the size of a marble. They're very small. Has the group come to any conclusions or speculations about the number of Sasquatches in the immediate area? There is a lot of speculation because there are visual sightings. There's a lot of instances that have involved two at a time visually. So there's at least two. Uh, there's a lot of sound incidents that have involved three or four at a time, you know, like rocks coming from three different directions, knocks coming from three different directions, sometimes four, um, hearing vocalizations from three or four different directions. So it, it's difficult to parse out whatever the lower end is that we could responsibly arrive at is probably the correct one. You guys have been really good about documenting like every knock, every rock, or you guys write down the time and what the conditions were. That also goes back to your earlier question about what I had learned recently, because now I do that with every outing. I just take copious notes. Alton Higgins gave a great talk at our recent training camp about like the essentials, the importance of keeping good field notes. And I would give anything to go back and have field notes from all my previous outings. So I would encourage anybody, if, if you're going out and doing this stuff, take extensive notes, even if it's just for yourself, because one day that stuff will matter to you, even if they're just memories. Like I, I really wish I had all that for all those years. 
I haven't heard a lot about any uh, footprint evidence coming out of there. And I know gr- the ground does not, you know, record footprints very well. But uh, how much or have you guys gotten anything out of there that um, might help you track individuals over time? Well, Alton found a set of tracks there uh, during one of his first visits, which is what started this entire project and process. I know that they found tracks on a couple of occasions, but it's few and far between just because of the nature of the ground there and the substrate. Hey, where, where can people, you know, because I know Kathy and Bob Strange showed that video that was made down there that showed the film by drone showing the layout of the land. And what website can people go to see all this stuff? That stuff is at woodape.org. I think probably the best treatment of it so far um, in Seth Breedlove's On the Trail of Bigfoot series, he did a whole episode called Area X, and that's available free on YouTube. But uh, that's what I would recommend people check out if they want to, you know, a kind of a brief overview of the group and the spot and what's going on there is, is that particular episode. There's a report called the, the Washita Project Monograph that's available on the website that's kind of a compilation of, of the most significant events in the first few years of the summer operations. That's woodape.org? Yep, woodape.org. And that's also where people can uh, link up with uh, the podcast as well, right? The podcast is called Apes Among Us. I co-host it and co-produce it, and uh, it comes out about once a month or every month and a half or so. But, yeah, you can find that in all the same places that you find Bigfoot and Beyond. People always ask me what's my favorite other podcast, because I've only heard a few of yours, but those are the best. How many do you guys have now? I think the next one that comes out is going to be the eighth episode. That is great. All right. Well, it sounds like we're losing Bobo's audio again. Um, okay. What? Why don't we just call it quits right here, man? Bobo, give us a metallic goodbye, and uh, we'll, we'll get out of here. This is Robo. We're going to sign off tonight for funny things. Oh, fuck. Does it sound like a robot still? Yeah, but call yourself Robo Bobo. This is Robo Bobo saying goodnight from Bigfoot and Beyond. We wish to thank our wonderful guest, Matt Pruitt. Check him out at woodape.org. Listen to his podcast. Thank you for listening, and keep it squatchy. <laughs> that's pretty great awesome all right thanks you guys i really appreciate it man thanks for uh letting me rattle on all right later Love guys thanks for listening to this week's episode of bigfoot and beyond if you liked what you heard please rate and review us on itunes Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 